Welcome to the CEC report for the 9th of March 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, be warned, a canary in the mortgage bubble mine has just dropped dead. And as Australia takes the TPP poison, Trump smashes the free trade consensus. Now, first today, though, in breaking news, we've just heard the reports coming out of uh, meetings in Washington where the South Koreans had a delegation uh, meeting with US representatives. And uh, apparently from those talks, North Korea has agreed to cease their nuclear testing. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the uh, leader of North Korea, has invited Trump to meet with him and apparently Trump has agreed. So this is actually very good news on a subject that we've been uh, reporting on regularly, so we wanted to quickly mention that. However, we'll get straight into the gory details of today's show, Craig. Be warned, a canary in the mortgage bubble mine has just dropped dead. It is gory, isn't it? <laughs> so now what we're referring to is a company by the name of Deposit Power that has just collapsed here in Australia. Now it's a property finance company which essentially provides bridging finance for people to put up a deposit on a housing loan um, with a, a guarantee certificate or a bond. And this company, Deposit Power, collapsed when the New Zealand insurer, CBL, which underwrites it, collapsed. So there's already been a, a domino-style uh, phenomenon here. Now, 10,000 investors and nearly $300 million worth of um, deposit, housing deposits are at risk here. And if you consider that those 10,000 investors are buying perhaps houses at a value of around a million dollars, which is the median cost in a lot of suburbs in Melbourne and Sydney, um, that could be $10 billion of property sales that could be collapsing as a result. So this could have a major impact on the housing bubble. Um, and the company itself also has links to most major property brokers and major banks. So obviously there's gonna be a flow through effect. Uh, and in addition to this particular canary, uh, there has been a few. For example, you've had uh, McGraw that suffered big losses and also Domain.com uh, that had a major stock plunge recently. So Craig, this is obviously going to have a shakeout. I'm going to talk a bit more about how the Royal Commission is going to take up this subject in general. But these kinds of loans are really not legitimate in terms of a deposit. If you've got to put up a deposit for a house, you shouldn't be going to a third party to borrow that deposit, well, should Bruce, you? It, this is the problem, Elisa, in that, first of all, the economy isn't being able to support people to save enough to be able to get the deposit in the first place. Secondly, the mortgage market is so overpriced because of the speculation that it caused by the government through APRA and others creating the mortgage bubble in the first place, so ordinary folk can't get a reasonably priced house, therefore the deposit is so high, they're going to extreme measures in order to be able to get a deposit. But look, the entire economy is based on speculation, so people are being forced to get into really speculative modes, which is what this represents. So the entire structure, the entire system, as we've said many times in this program, is based on pure speculation. Mm. And that's why we've come back time and time again to say we have to have what's called Glass-Steagall banking separation. We have to go back to a highly regulated banking system where you put a Glass-Steagall re-regulation of the banking system. You separate out the commercial banking system 
from the retail speculative bank, uh, merchant banking system, take out the speculation from the system, go back to boring banking. And the banks, the big banks in this country are going to scream about this because mm. they believe that they have every right to have access to people's deposits. This is a different mindset. It's a political fight because for the last 40 years, we've had a policy of basically hands off any sort of deregulation anywhere. And that means that in terms of the banks, the banks have had a free reign to do whatever they like. Financial services have had a free reign. You've seen the corruption come in. Now there's a Royal Commission being mm -hmm. called because of this, the, 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 uh, the corruption that's come in. Well, this is what happens when you pit the private interests of the bank, bankers and shareholders against what is called the general welfare and the, or the public good. Now, this is a political fight. It's a philosophical idea which comes back to what's the role of government. Mm. And you know, people are very fed up these days. We get it all the time because we have people in, our, in the field talking to people all the time. They are fed up to the back teeth of politicians, our representatives, not representing their actual interests, but instead being seen to represent the big banks. And I think the passing of the last APRA bill, which has allowed the bail-in legislation to come in, by default, because they did not exclude deposits mm -hmm. from being bailed in, is an absolute proof. And it was only done by, what, seven or nine senators in the actual Senate that voted this, basically waved this bill through. Yep. People have seen this, they're angry about it, and they should be angry. Mm. Because the problem is, you know, we've seen a, a complete move away from the interests of the general welfare of the population uh, being governed to the interests of speculators. And, and the banks, yeah. which is the banks. And this is, you know, even regardless of who intends what within the Royal Commission, what the government intended, what the Commissioner himself intends, etc., there's no helping this all coming out. The reality is going to emerge out of this process. And interestingly enough, um, Kenneth Hayne has announced that one of the first major topics, and this will be at the hearings held in Melbourne next week, this will come up, uh, is going to look at some of the big banking uh, issues, including mortgage fraud, uh, but also things that intersect the debate about vertical integration, where banks, you know, house insurance companies and so forth. So they'll look at issues relating to home loans, uh, car finance, credit cards, insurance add-ons and so forth, but also systemic things like the fraudulent broker arrangements, failure of automated systems, unsuitable pre-approved credit cards or overdrafts, account administration errors and fraudulent loan applications. So this is going to bring a whole host of issues to the fore. Um, one of the things, of course, is liar loans. This has been a big topic of discussion even in the media. And we'll put up a graph here to show the percentage of borrowers whose applications are considered not completely factual and accurate, which is up to 45% as of last year with some banks. Um, now, one of the other big issues, though, Craig, is the fact that, as we've discussed many times in discussing this APRA legislation, the crisis management powers that have just passed, is the role of the regulators. Mm. Because the regulators have turned a blind eye to a lot of criminal activity. They've made rulings that have encouraged um, that, that criminal activity. Uh, and it really is what has to be looked at. Now, the head of APRA, Wayne Byers, knows this is coming. And I want to show a quick clip, and this is from uh, the same Senate estimates hearing on the 1st of March, which we showed a clip from last week where Pauline Hanson was grilling him over whether deposits are guaranteed and whether um, deposits can be bailed in. So we'll show this clip where he's being um, asked by Senator Lee Rhiannon 
about the fault of the regulators in these bank crimes. What does it say about the job you are doing with mortgage fraud that the Royal Commission has prioritised this as the first issue that they are looking at? Uh, well, look, I, I mean, we have said, uh, I've said before this committee about three years ago that we were unhappy with mortgage lending standards. We thought they had got to very low levels and in some cases uh, lacked common sense. Uh, so um, I can understand why the Royal Commission would think this is an area they want to look at. It's also the largest asset class on the, on the uh, balance sheet of the banking system. So if you're going to look for something that's important to the stability of the system and where most consumers are interacting with the banking system, uh, it's an obvious place to start. Um, is it also because you've been too slow to act on this? Is that a factor? Oh, look, we've devoted a lot of resources to this over the last little while. I think you can always say with the benefit of hindsight that when regulators have to intervene in the way we've intervened, that with the benefit of hindsight you wish you'd done something sooner. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, what you did at the time you made any particular decisions was or didn't act was necessarily the wrong decision. Um, so of course you wish you had got on to issues earlier. That's, uh, that's always a regulator's dilemma. So you do think you should have got onto it earlier? No, I've said before, I, you know, I wish we had, but you, you make decisions on uh, the information you have at the time. Uh, the more we've looked at this, the more we've dug into it, the more we've identified the need for improvements in the industry. So do you think the banks are the target of the Royal Commission or is it your lax regulation like the, these failures? No, that's, that's a question for the government. But you could comment on it. Well, there's a terms of reference, uh, there's a, uh, uh, an item within the terms of reference that invites the Royal Commission to comment on the effectiveness of regulators. So I'm sure they'll do that. So, you know, he knows this is coming up and he's obviously nervous about it. But I'll say one thing about it. While the terms of reference of this Royal Commission say that they can investigate, quote, the effectiveness and ability of regulators to identify and address misconduct by those entities. It also states that the Royal Commission may not make recommendations in relation to macroprudential policy, regulation or oversight. In other words, Hain can't come out as a result of this commission recommending changing the structure of our regulatory system. That's pretty much out of bounds in terms of the remit of this commission. So that means they won't be coming out with Glass-Steagall, but that doesn't mean that it won't be an obvious conclusion for everyone else in the country to draw that really this demands, this begs for Glass-Steagall. Alicia, as part of this, uh, what we are doing as an organisation is we're writing legislation for Glass-Steagall here in Australia because what's become very apparent is that we need it desperately. We're writing that legislation and we'll put on the table very shortly, within the next week or two, legislation that shows how you can actually or what's necessary for the Australian system for Glass-Steagall separation of the banks. That means that we're calling for the big four banks and Macquarie Bank to literally separate, or it's not so much for Macquarie because it's not involved in retail banking so much, but literally the retail banks to separate out their retail or commercial operations from all their other operations. And when we talk about vertical integration, you know, we're talking about mm. what you said before, you know, the, the insurance companies, the brokers, houses, the wholesale investment bankings away from their commercial banking 
operations. Now, those commercial or retail banking operations with their deposits would be protected fully under a Glass-Steagall system. Wayne Byers came out in that uh, Senate hearings and he lied mm. about the fact that his, this, this last lot of legislation that went through actually by default has given APRA, the regulator, the ability to bail in deposits mm. and it did it underhandedly by not e excluding deposits from the, the legislative regime put into place for that last lot of legislation. He knew this was coming. Back in 2013, right, we pointed the finger that there was legislation in train coming to Australia to give the, 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 the regulators the power to bail in, to, to take people's deposits. 2013, it was black and white, we caught him. Yep. Now he, in that committee, bragged about the fact that that legislation was in. Yep. So he knew. Exactly. So what, 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 and now there's a big cover-up going on. Yeah. They're all covering their steps big time because APRA has the power, by default, to bail in people's deposits. Mm. And I think, you know, the uh, Royal Commission can't touch this in, in the way that, uh, you know, we would like it to happen. Yeah. So we'll put this legislation forward. It's going to create real, not real problems, but a real issue, a real issues for the, for the legislators of our country. Are they going to support this legislation for Glass-Steagall? Or consider this, we're heading for global financial crisis mark two. Everyone's talking about it. Right, because the system has not been fixed. So what's going to happen? Are we in whatever period of time? Are we going to allow for an orderly process of a government-initiated process of Glass-Steagall with we're calling for a national banking system, or are we going to allow the same private banking system that's caused the problem in the first place to continue to say to us, "This is how you have to fix it: more austerity, you know, more control by the private banks." Or whatever. So that's the choice that's coming down to our legislators mm. in the future. Yep. And that's uh, that's <laughs> the dilemma that they're going to be faced with. We have to take a quick break, but we're going to talk about that and look at it in more depth right after this. Welcome back to the CEC report, where we're going to talk now about the financial crisis coming down, because that really is the impetus to bring in emergency powers for our regulators like APRA and so forth to be able to confiscate deposits and other things at the point of the crash. And as you had raised, Craig, uh, the point of the crash, we really want to know in advance, is it going to be private banks who determine what is going to happen to like people and their now. livelihood, yep. exactly, if we continue with more of the same? Or is it going to be the function of government that puts the common good first? And I want to go through a few of the warnings about the financial system crash now. Just a couple of updates. You've had Sheila Blair, who has warned of a 2008-2009 crash all over again. Now, she's the former head of the US Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So that's a top administrative regulatory role over there. And she said, we didn't fundamentally change the system since last time and that the memories and lessons of what drove the last crisis are completely being ignored. One outcome of bailing out the big banks was that they emerged with a lot of political power. So remember that. Um, now, I also want to mention there's been a major spike in the LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate, which is how the banks lend to each other, the rates they offer. That's the highest in 10 years. It is affecting a sea of US credit that has expro exploded in the last 15 years up to a 
increase or well above $11 trillion total of all this US dollar debt floating around. Ambrose Evans Pritchard of The Telegraph, who's a City of London insider, has said that this kind of rationing of credit is, quote, what happened in 2007 and 2008 when offshore markets seized up and threatened to bring down the European banking system. The scale, he said, is epic. And finally, the chief Asia strategist for Japanese finance giant Nomura, Rob Subaraman, warned 54 separate early warning signs of a future crash are flashing red. He said this is higher than during the peak of the Asian crisis in 97, 98. Mm. So, OK, the banks have all this power. The system's about to come down. The banks are bigger than they ever were before. What we have the danger of here, and this was mentioned by um, the former APRA researcher, Dr. Wilson Sy, who played a key role in exposing the nature of this new bail-in uh, legislation along with us. He said what they have rammed through with this new APRA Act is the equivalent of a financial martial law. And in 2016, a City of London insider had revealed that actual martial law was close to being imposed in the City of London at the point of the 2008 global financial crisis. And since then, if you look at even the anti-terror powers that have been brought in, one of the things they pushed for in the City of London was the ability to close the entire square mile to vehicular and foot traffic. Um, they wouldn't allow people necessarily to access ATMs and so forth. And with the confiscation of money on a major scale of people not being able to access accounts, these are the kind of links that governments would be forced to go to if we continue along this approach. Um, and Wayne Byers has lied on the issue of deposits. Mm. For starters, anything that falls above the, the deposit guarantee, the Australian Financial Claims Scheme, above 250000 is immediately going to disappear. I mean, he lied when he said deposits can't be taken. That can be taken. That's very, very clear. What we've also pointed out is that amounts of money below that will also be able to be taken if they make changes to um, you know, the, the technical wording of the law that's already now in place. That's assuming that you know, see the, the financial claim scheme isn't even activated, Elise. It doesn't exist right now. Yeah, that's I mean, right. And it also assumes that it could be activated in the future on the interest of depositors. But the way that the whole legislation works is that this idea of um, the, the financial claiming scheme is not necessarily going to be activated because if they decide that the quote-unquote financial stability of the system is more important, mm. they won't activate it. Mm. It's all smoke and mirrors and it's all the sort of uh, lies that you'd expect from bankers that are protecting their own system ahead of depositors. And the other thing that's going to go are the hybrid securities and a lot of people may not even know they have these securities. These are bail-inable as soon as a bank's in trouble and we'll just put on the screen uh, a supporter sent us in a email that she got from a financial company uh, promoting the latest offer from the Commonwealth Bank of a uh, 750 million new hybrid offer and as she said it looks so benign um, and yet these are extremely risky. Now we have to stop again but be sure to call in if you haven't already for a copy of our Australian Alert Service, our weekly magazine because we don't have time to go through all the details on the show but we do have all the backup information. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the CEC Report. 
As Australia takes the TPP poison, Trump smashes the free trade consensus. So we're just going to briefly talk about um, the fact that uh, Trump has put tariffs on steel and, you know, the Australian reaction to that. Um, Australia has, of course, called for an exemption on this and we don't know 100% whether that'll be approved or not. But one of the things we threw up was that we needed on, on national security grounds. This is basically bringing up the whole argument about Australia and the US being allies in the process of containing China. And what we saw in Malcolm Turnbull's recent trip to the US was all about that because he promoted public-private partnerships, the whole private approach that you were alluding to before, Craig, about you know who controls um, the system. And he also promoted the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And he, he put that in terms of containing China by reinforcing the Western rules of the game. And I'll just quote what he said, because it says it all. He said, we need to level the playing field for private sector companies. And that's why, as I said, we backed the Trans-Pacific Partnership so strongly, not just because of the market access it delivers, which is very beneficial, creates jobs and investment, but because it creates the rules of the road we need to match the economic journey we're embarking on. So they're enforcing the free trade model, which of course what Trump is doing um, is going completely against that free trade model. And he did cite, I'll add, uh, protectionist presidents, including William McKinley, Abraham Lincoln and uh, George Washington when he announced this today. Yeah, we, we're in lockstep with the, the British free trade model. And I've done, we've done presentations, I've done a lot of presentations on this. This is the old British liberal model of the British East India Company. Yeah. This goes back to the model of slave trading, of opium trading, of actually using force to create the rules of the game, right, which do not benefit nation states. Nation states are, the idea of a nation state is to be sovereign, to be independent, and to have strong manufacturers so that you produce the goods for your own people. Mm -hmm. When you get into free trade, the idea is no, 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 you have to go to the advantage of whoever is the trading you know, or the merchant, right, or the banker. So therefore you eliminate local manufacturers and you import whatever's cheapest and you, you get rid of uh, your local manufacturers. And you, you know, you, for example, this is what happened with the opium wars, it happens with, you know, textile trades right throughout the history of the British Empire, slavery and so forth. Mm. And you end up impoverishing nations. And look what's happened to the United States. Yeah. Trump is reacting to the fact that they, they had a magnificent steel industry in the United States which is decimated. Now he's saying we're going to bring that back. Now it's the right impulse. It's absolutely the right thing to do. We should be doing the same thing here. We have a steel, we've got steel all over the place. We've got coke and coal. We should be developing our country. We have tremendous infrastructure projects that we could build like high-speed rail and so forth, which use a lot of steel. We could create a lot of high-paying high jobs by expanding our steel, uh, our steel manufacturing capacity. It's, as we've said, we need tariffs, tariffs in this country too to bring back manufacturers. But that flies in, a, in, in the face of, uh, of the free trade doctrine, mm. which Trump is really uh, smashing at this particular yeah. time. It's going to be interesting to see which and way it goes. China's challenging it as well. There was an interesting article in the New York Times magazine which pointed out that Britain was protectionist at first to build itself up, but then it kicked away the ladder once it built itself up. 
and even a Bloomberg economist said, the more I apply my rules of economics to China, the more they seem to go awry. So Australia should be paying a lot more attention to what they're doing. They're actually following the old American Hamiltonian model, schooled after Alexander Hamilton, George Washington's Treasury Secretary. Um, so people can find out more about that. Call us. We write a lot about this. We've got a lot of historical research contrasting the British and the American systems of economics. Uh, and people should find out more and go to their MPs and say this is the approach. Definitely. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks, yeah, Craig. Thanks, Lisa. And join us again for the CEC report next week. Mm -hmm.